it's it's definitely something that everyone can work on and that everyone can benefit benefit from really in every domain of life you know the research is out there about in how many ways having resilience fortitude metal whatever you want to call it can can benefit you Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Bernie Ackerman is the author of seven books. Her early travels sparked her interest in learning about human nature at a young age. This interest led her to Claremont Graduate University, where she earned a master's degree in positive psychology. She now works as a researcher and survey consultant in California. She enjoys traveling, spending time with her dogs, sampling beer at nearby breweries, and playing board games and video games to de-stress. Enjoy our conversation today in The Forge. Courtney, thank you for joining us in The Forge today. Let's yeah. get to know you just a little bit. You know, we don't have a lot of time to go too deep, but one of the things that stood out to me as I was doing research on you is you have this quote, my niche is in the gray area between theory and application where things are not so abstract to be inaccessible, but not so watered down that they can no longer be said to be based in evidence at all. As I look at that, and if I'm going to paraphrase that, I'm saying you take things that are hard to understand and and maybe bring that to maybe an audience that makes it a little easier to understand. Is that a good way to look at that? And why do you feel like this is an important niche? Yeah, I mean, that's that's my goal. And um, I think I, I do it to varying degrees of success. But, that, you know, there's there's a lot of really, really good information out there. But a lot of it is written in very, you know, kind of scientific jargon and technical terms in ways that makes it really hard to to understand for people that didn't, you know, major in psychology or any of the other fields that kind of come to bear on topics like these. So I I like to do what I can to take those complicated kind of jargon heavy results and then translate them into something that is more accessible to people that people can take and and run with and, and apply in their own lives. Boy, th- this resonates with me because as somebody that reads a lot of research papers, I always say to myself, these are so, number one, they're, they're hard to read, they're, they're dry, and it really is hard to read them and, and say, okay, how do I use this? How do I use this? Because quite honestly, a lot of researchers, uh, you know, dare I say, don't care. they do the research and they say, okay, this is the fascinating stuff that I've found. Now, how you use that in the real world, I don't know, but you go figure that out. And so I think people (laughs) like you are very valuable to, to look at that stuff and say, okay, what's practical here? What is it that we can use? Which gosh, I'm not very good at it, to be honest. And so I think we need people doing that. Well, it takes practice. You know, there's a, a whole a whole host of reasons why research kind of comes out the way that it does. And that's definitely the topic for another podcast. But yeah. there's a lot of forces that are kind of encouraging it to be almost unreadable by a lay audience. So until we get those, you know, those things fixed, we need people who can essentially translate. Absolutely. And I think that's a good way to put it. Translate uh, Mm -hmm. what these very smart people are figuring out. All right. Today, a lot of our topic is going to be around resilience. I found you and you're, I was talking before we started 
on the air that you're very busy. You have a lot of <laughs> a lot of articles out there. I believe you're an author of seven books. Is that mm-hmm. right? Or, yeah. or okay, I, thought, I was hoping I was keeping up. You know, maybe it was eight <laughs> or nine by now, but not yet. <laughs> seven books. So a lot going on. And so one of the ways I found you. Number one, I teach leadership. And the funny thing is, there's a couple oh. articles that you've wrote that I have my students read. So your, oh, wow. name, yeah, your name was on my radar. And one of them that was interesting to me was an article that you wrote about resilience uh, mm-hmm. for positivepsychology.com, which is a website that I really like. Mm-hmm. And so let's start with that. And I may spin this because to some of your other areas of expertise, but I want to focus on resilience for now. And so let's start with a working definition, because I feel like a lot of people, they kind of, they know the word resilience and Mm -hmm. they may not really have a good feel for what does that really mean? You know, we say, okay, I think I know what it means. And I think I know who has it, but what does it mean? So let's go. And and this came from your article. This is a definition from psychology today. Mm -hmm. So resilience is that ineffable quality that allows some people to be knocked down by life and come back stronger than ever. Rather than letting failure overcome them and drain their resolve, they find a way to rise from the ashes. Or the short version, a lot of people will say the ability to bounce back. Mm -hmm. So as we jump into this discussion about resilience, I'm going to ask you, do you believe that we can develop this? Is this something that you're either born with and you either have it or you don't? Or is this something that we can actually develop and grow? Yeah, it's both, really. I mean, I think we're all born with a certain level of kind of innate resilience, but like most things, it's it's nature and nurture, you know? It's something that uh, you're born with a specific, you know, level or, or amount of it, and then your experiences in life really shape how that ultimately turns out, how much you kind of have to, to use, to apply, and you can absolutely build it, um, thankfully. <laughs> Yeah. And, and do you have a sense from the research that you've looked at? What are the things that maybe build this in us uh, at a young age? Adversity. Adversity is what what builds resilience because you can't really, you can't bounce back without something to bounce back from. But it's not just adversity because if you just had adversity and just everything was hard all the time, you know, you might never actually bounce back. You, you might never recover from that. So it's adversity, but it's also having a support system, having a safe environment, having a place from which you can learn and grow and and apply the things that you've gained from these adverse events. So just adversity on its own doesn't usually cut it. Well, and then I'm already starting to think of things. So adversity, you know, what I've read in the research is, is too much adversity. Like you said, too much can actually cause trauma, right? Mm-hmm. And so we see, you know, these, these two words that are thrown around a lot of PTSD, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, or mm-hmm. kind of the, the polar opposite of that of post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you have a sense of where is trauma? I mean, where is adversity a good thing? And where does it become this, this bad thing perhaps that turns into trauma? Is there any, is there any research on that? Yeah, well, I will just say quickly that I don't think PTSD and, and then post-traumatic growth are, are polar opposites. Okay. I think they can happen on the same spectrum, you know, because you'll have people that have suffered through PTSD who then go on to mm. experience post-traumatic growth. So they're not they're not totally separate concepts. It's it's things that can happen after we experience trauma. And it seems like it really depends on the person and on their own levels of stress, how they react to things. 
the resources they have available at the time. There's kind of a, a million factors that, that go into it, but it does seem like the number one thing that, that we come back to time and again in research as to whether someone kind of falls down and struggles to get back up or whether someone bounces back up is having a strong social support network. That's what's really important for people is to feel like uh, they're not alone, to feel like they are safe and, and loved. And that is a, a big difference between people who can't seem to get back on their feet and people who bounce up and go, all right, well, you know, that sucked, but moving on. Boy, that, that leads right into what's been going on, right? For mm-hmm. over 18 months now of, of COVID. And we've had, a lot of us have had our social network disrupted. How do you think COVID has exposed uh, resilience in us? Has this been a, has this been a, I don't know. Sometimes I think it's a big old laboratory here of, of watching how people are responding to this. Yeah, it's uh, it's certainly put us all to the test and put our resilience to the test. We've we've fallen down a lot and we've fallen down pretty hard over the last 18 months. And we weren't always able to get it back up right away. But I think that's a lesson that we've taken from this is that you may not be able to get back up right away. And that's okay. I think we've all done a, a little bit of wallowing here and there. You know, our, our normal is has been completely disrupted and, and is gone. You know, there may be a new normal, but I don't think there's ever uh, a way that we can go back to the way it was before. But, you know, resilience is about recognizing that that's okay, that change happens, and that rolling with that change, doing our best to adapt to it is, is how we move forward. I appreciate you say that because one of the things when I counsel not only coaching clients, but also my students, you know, I'm a professor and and I've watched my undergrads have to navigate this. I mean, some of them lost their entire senior year to, to not being able to be on campus. So it's, it's pretty traumatic to them. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think to myself, one of the things I always like to say is, is, you know, have some grace for yourself. You know, this is not normal. And sometimes the best we can do, you know, day in and day out is just, just get by, you know, survive. And I think there, there, you know, part of this podcast is, is talking about mental toughness. I think sometimes that, that idea of mental toughness gets thrown around as we never have bad days and we never struggle. And, you know, every day is a good day and we always got to be strong. So I appreciate that you say, you know what, sometimes it's, it's not going to be great. Absolutely. I, if, if someone never struggled in their lives, I wouldn't call them resilient. You know, it's, it's struggle that, that shapes us. It's struggle that, that leads to growth and, and development. It's, it's necessary to fall back down to, or to fall down to eventually get back up again. So that's part of the equation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's a necessary yeah. ingredient. As we're on this topic and your understanding of mental toughness, we, on this podcast, we, we had Doug Strachardzik, mm-hmm. say his name right, back in episode, I think it was 33, and he talked about his four C's model of mental toughness, which I think you're familiar with. How does resilience compare with mental toughness? Yeah, you know, they're, they're similar things. There's a lot, of, a lot of concepts that sort of overlap with resilience. So mental toughness is, is definitely related, but I see it as more of like meeting the challenge, you know, kind of rising up to meet a challenge as it, as, as it comes towards you. Whereas resilience is more about getting kind of 
sideswiped, right? Or getting um, completely thrown off by a challenge and then picking yourself back up after. So the two are, are related. They're both about, you know, about being kind of tough and, and getting getting up and, and meeting the things that are coming to face you, the difficult things. But one is sort of like before the fact and one is after. And, you know, we can all use a bit of both. Yeah, good. I, you know, that that's kind of the way I look at it too. There's, there's definitely overlap between the two. And I didn't, they get thrown around and, you know, I think resilience probably gets a little bit more airplay than mental toughness. The, you know, the other one that is, is, I don't know, should I call it famous? It's, it's certainly a buzzword. And then a lot of that is because of, of Angela Duckworth and that is grit. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we look at grit as compared to resilience? Again, I think we see overlap. Is that right? And, yeah. and how are they different? Yeah, they definitely overlap. Again, I see grit as more of a more of a long term thing. Resilience is sort of about like when something knocks you down, finding your way to get back up. But it's sort of a sort of a burst. I guess it happens in bursts. You know, you're not knocked down all the time constantly. It's something that happens once in a while. You learn how to get back up, brush yourself off and move forward. But grit is more long-term. It's it's sticking to striving towards your goals, you know, no matter um, how difficult it becomes, no matter how long it takes, no matter how many things pop up in your way, how many obstacles you have to overcome. Again, both important, <laughs> both really good things to develop, but slightly different. Yeah. And so, you know, we're talking about a lot of terms here and, and hopefully everybody's not getting too confused by this, but you know, whether we use mental toughness, resilience, grit, you know, fortitude has been thrown around, maybe not in this podcast, but, but in in other areas, I like to use metal on this podcast, of course. And and so there's a lot of overlap as we talked about, it really doesn't matter. I, I don't know that it matters what word you like to gravitate toward, but I would ask you, Courtney, is, is this something that the everyday person should develop or is this just a area where, you know, people are doing elite, really hard things need to focus? Is, is this something that's valuable to us? It's definitely, I mean, we all struggle, right? We all fail. We all come up against adversity. It's uh, <laughs> Failure is not something that just the uh, elite or, or top performers or most ambitious people face. It's something that we all throughout our lives. So, yeah. It's, it's definitely something that everyone can work on and that everyone can benefit from, benefit from really in every domain of life. You know, the research is out there about in how many ways having resilience, fortitude, metal, whatever you want to call it, can, can benefit you. Yeah, you know, you talked earlier about this idea of adversity and, and all of these concepts seem to be, in, in, at least in my mind, fueled by adversity, right? Without adversity, it's really, do you really need to have uh, resilience or, or mental toughness or even, even grit? I mean, you know, that long-term, you know, goal that you're pursuing, adversity mm-hmm. is going to be part of that equation as well. So what, you know, most people are going to say, you know, I, I'm actually writing my own book and one of the chapters is focusing on this idea of adversity and as it relates to happiness. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to go a little off script here with you of, when I ask people, uh, what's your definition of happiness? And I get all kinds of answers, right? This is a very hard thing to say, what is happiness? And it's going to be a little different for a lot of people. But one of the things that I notice is nobody ever says, yeah, a happy life has adversity in it. So I would, I would say to you, can we, is, is adversity part of a good life? Is that something that maybe we could look at as a good thing? 
Absolutely it is. And I would say that, you know, if you asked me what my definition of happiness was, I wouldn't mention adversity either. For me, happiness is is positive affect, you know, is, is positive emotions, is feeling good, feeling pleasure, just a general sense of, you know, things are right, things are good. And that's great to feel that, but that's not necessarily what makes a good life. Certainly a good life hopefully has times of happiness in it, But what we found time and time again in the research is that what really influences a a good life is a sense of meaning, uh, purpose, having positive relationships, and and really a a sense of well-being rather than happiness. And, you know, that's another term that to, you know, people that don't really study the, you know, psychology, positive psychology, they're like, yeah. Same thing, you know, right? Happiness, well-being. But well-being is is more about a general sense of contentment with your life, of being generally okay with, with how it's going and um, satisfied, satisfied with how your, how your life has gone or is currently going. And you don't need to be happy all the time to have a sense of well-being, mm. but it's, it's hard to find meaning and purpose without at least some adversity. So... Going back to, you know, that that definition and uh, of happiness and, you know, how it relates to adversity. The two don't necessarily need to interact, but for it to be a, a good life, I, I believe there has to be some adversity. I'm so glad you said that. One, that's another thing that I, that I counsel folks on is is a, a good life is not always happy, right? No. So, I mean... <laughs> I think some people think that if they have a bad day, and then this is going to go back to what I said earlier, if they have a bad day or they have a day where they're not happy, they think they've failed somehow. And, mm-hmm. and I just like to say, hey, we're emotional beings and we go up and down and up and down. And that's part of the game. And so that doesn't mean that you're you're off track is the mm-hmm. best way I like to say it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, even the best lives, even the most satisfied, you know, people are, are, they still have their bad days. It's, it's totally normal to have a bad day every once in a while. I like to, I like to graph out, you know, growth or, or healing or recovery after trauma and show that it's, you know, it's nowhere near a straight line. Mm. Um, It's all over the place. It's up. You're doing pretty good. Oh, you have a bad day. It's back down, you know? Oh, and then you're even better than before. Oh, and then you have another setback. It, it's not linear. We are, as you said, emotional beings and our emotions influence us. And that's just, that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. I, I think my mind goes back to, I've, you know, I've, I've helped some people through divorces and, you know, the trauma of that. And, you know, sometimes they would get frustrated that, they felt like they were on this linear path to, you know, getting all better and, and then have some uh, stumbles or, or step backward and they would get frustrated. And I said, well, that's just part of, that's part of the deal. So I appreciate you saying that because I, I think, I think a lot of people think it should be linear, right. Or we expect it to be maybe. So let's go back to this adversity thing. The, the other thing that, and again, this is not my original research. This is just my review of the research, which was a little bit interesting to me that I found it. But when I think about it in an intuitive sense, it makes perfect sense. The idea that adversity actually affects our ability to savor. Have Mm. you come across that, Courtney? And I mean, how are those two linked in your mind? Yeah. Yeah. I've definitely come across that. And what that says to me is, is that when we have really, when we've really struggled 
when we've had really difficult experiences, we remember that. We remember how bad it can get. And then later, you know, when we've kind of recovered and it's not so bad, we not only appreciate the really good things even more, we even appreciate the mundane even more. You know, if you talk to an elderly people who are generally more satisfied with their lives than, you know, younger to middle-aged folks, they'll often talk about how they're just content with the the way things are. They're just content with their kind of daily routine. They get a lot of joy out of the little things, out of, you know, a visit from the grandkids, out of playing a game with their friends, taking a walk. They find a lot of meaning and a lot of joy in just the regular everyday things uh, that younger people who have just kind of experienced less adversity overall so far in their lives don't tend to appreciate so much yet. So I think, you know, part of it is just time and part of it is the the more you experience adversity, the more you struggle, the more you appreciate the the good to, to just neutral, I guess, moments. Yeah. I never thought of that connection. You know, there, there's a lot of evidence out there, like you say, that, that older folks just seem to have a satisfaction with life. And I never thought of it in the context of more than likely. I mean, nobody gets through this, this life without facing some kind of adversity, right? So at mm-hmm. that point in their life, they've already faced a lot of adversity and maybe that helps them um, with their ability to savor those. Again, the little things in life, right? Those little things that maybe we take for granted. Mm-hmm. I think back to, I got COVID and I lost my sense of smell, which a lot of people have. And I'll oh. tell you what, that was, that was miserable for me because I like yeah. food. But I'll tell you what, when my smell came back, it was amazing. Everything I was going around smelling, you know, coffee beans and flowers and, <laughs> and you know, so I was savoring something that I had always taken for granted. And it was because of that adversity of losing a sense of smell for a period of time. So mm-hmm. that, I don't know, it's a fascinating thing to me to, again, going back to this idea that adversity maybe can be a good thing, at least in, in the right context. Absolutely. Yeah. And to throw out a cliche, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone. So sometimes it takes losing something to realize how uh, important, wonderful, life-giving that that thing is. Let's let's continue with this thinking and maybe, you know, maybe this is right along the same track here, but what, what about optimism? How does that, you know, factor into the equation of resilience? Yeah, optimism is is strongly correlated with resilience. And it makes sense. I mean, optimism is having a general sense that things are going to be okay. You know, things are going to be all right. They're going to get better. Uh, even if they get worse, eventually they'll get better. Things are going to turn out well. Uh, and you can easily see how resilience is is related and, and even sort of built off of optimism. The more optimistic you are in general, and the more like, likely you are to believe that you can get through this and that you're going to be okay. You're going to come out the other side. Is there, you know, maybe this is going to be a leading question, but is there, can we have too much interchangeable with optimism as, as positivity? Can we be too positive? Can we be too optimistic? You know, sometimes the word toxic positivity is thrown around. What is your sense of that? How do we frame being positive and optimistic? Yeah, I, I like to aim for realistic optimism. I think you can definitely be too optimistic. And I totally get the uh, the toxic positivity, the term that's been thrown around a lot lately. 
Although I'm, I'm interested to see that a lot of that has sort of disappeared over the pandemic. I feel like even the most positive people <laughs> have been struggling with their optimism. So now it's not quite so much, you know, like, well, just smile and you'll get over yeah. it. Like, oh no, things really do suck sometimes, you know, they do. And it doesn't, it's, it's not a bad thing to, to acknowledge that, that, that struggle happens. And, you know, like we said earlier, you, you, you can't always bounce back right away. And that's okay. It is what it is. A big part of, you know, leading a satisfying life is accepting things the way they are. So there's a balance between kind of accepting reality and and thinking positively about the future. And if you're too kind of stuck in just accepting what is, you're never going to grow. But if you're too, you know, head in the clouds, everything's going to be great. You're never going to work hard to like make that happen, right? Because you're just like, well, it'll work out, I believe. You know, but we sometimes we have to make things work out. And the people that are super optimistic and everything's great, they might not be putting in the work that they need to put in to develop their skills, to, you know, develop a a strong social support network. I mean, they probably have a lot of people that are like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, I do not need to be around all this toxic positivity all the time. Yeah, that, and that's a great way to frame it because here's the thing, you know, our our, our minds, our, our body-mind system is causing discomfort for a reason. You know, you say having your head in the clouds. So you, if you did, I mean, I always say this, this, or I just like to think of this idea, if we were completely content, would we ever change? Would we ever try to get better? Would we ever mm-hmm. try to improve? And so I think a little bit of that discomfort is, is just our, our body-mind system saying, hey, you need to pay attention to this and maybe do something about it. So I, I think mm-hmm. maybe that's a maybe a, a healthy way to look at it. What do you think? Oh, I agree. Yeah, 100%. Without some sense of dissatisfaction with the way things are, and we would never change. And who knows, maybe we'd all be a lot happier, but <laughs> that is not the reality, <laughs> right? That's not yeah. the reality of our world. We're going to be dissatisfied. We're going to be uncomfortable and we have to figure out ways to to deal with that. But luckily that's what leads to that, you know, feeling of meaning of greater well-being. Yeah. Let me push back on that. Do you think we'd be happier? Let's say we, we were just perfectly content all the time. You know, I feel mm-hmm. like, and I, I'm not sure if this is true from the research, but I feel like we're, we're built human beings are built to strive for something that's meaningful, to improve, to learn, to grow. Is, is that what you've seen in the research or is that what your instincts tell you? You know, there's uh, evolutionary psychology is a, a really interesting field, but it, it's, it's got a lot of like, well, we think this might be how it works. You know, it's, it's tough to really test those theories, but if you look at evolutionary psychology, yeah, we we're, you know, born and bred and our genes were developed for the struggle. We were, we evolved that way. All life has really evolved that way to, to kind of lean into the struggle. So you know, we might we might be happier if we had no no struggle, if we were just sort of content all the time. But going back to definitions, I don't think I don't think we would have well being. Mm. It's it would be an empty happiness that was yeah. that was based on on nothing really meaningful. Well, that, that that the door just swung open. Empty happiness, right? <laughs> How many people that are affluent? that, you know, have, have a lot of resources and a lot of those resources are money, mm-hmm. say they live a, a empty life. And, mm-hmm. and maybe because all of that money and all of that, you know, affluence 
has removed the struggle. They no longer have to struggle and maybe it's become bland. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm just kind of, you know, riffing here a little bit of that's what I see. Yeah. And then they have to build themselves a rocket ship and go to space in order to feel something. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you yeah. go. We'll take a little joy ride to space to, yeah, to find some meaning, right? I, I guess. So anyway, that most of us are, are not faced with that problem, but there's a couple words that, that I want to kind of touch on that you've also written about and, and still, you know, whether we're talking about resilience or mental toughness, I'm fascinated by these concepts of confidence and self-esteem. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the questions I often get, especially from younger undergraduate students, is how do I get confidence without experience? And so I would ask you that. And then I would also ask you, how important is self-esteem to us, uh, to our to our well-being? Um, it's, it's pretty important. I think it's rare that you find someone with pretty high well-being that doesn't all also have at least a, you know, moderate amount of self-esteem. Again, these are concepts that, that go hand in hand. There's definitely some overlap. To those that say, you know, how can I get confidence without experience? I would, I would say what's stopping you from getting experience? You know, you don't need to have experience in every single task or avenue to have confidence overall. I I mean, I totally identify with that. When I was back in school, I was like, you know, how can I feel confident in myself and and my ability to do this future job when I haven't actually done it? But luckily, a lot of skills are transferable and there's a lot of of overlap between experiences, between adversity, between the different struggles that we uh, face in our lives. So just because you don't have a particular type of experience doesn't mean you don't have any experience. Everyone has faced something challenging and and overcome it. And looking back and and recognizing where that happened in your life and noting, you know, where you succeeded and where you failed and looking back on how much you've grown, all of that can help you build your confidence, you know, just because you don't have that specific type of experience doesn't mean you have none. Perfectly said. We had a guest on here previously that says you can't learn it, you need to earn it. And, you know, we can do some of it, right? We can, we can read some books and we can, mm-hmm. we can actually, you know, get some code mentors or, or teachers or whatever. But at the end of the day, we need to go out there and, and get that experience, as you say. So that's usually my short answer is, yeah, get out there and engage with life. And that's how you're going to do it. But I like the way, the way you spin that of these things are transferable, right? Mm -hmm. And again, we get through these hard things, right? We get through these hard things and we go, okay, I've done this before and I've done that before. It's not the same, but Mm -hmm. I know that I can do hard things. And this is just another hard thing that I'm going to get through. And again, all goes back to that experience, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think the best way to develop confidence is to try new things. And you know, sometimes you're going to fail and that's okay. Uh, and then you'll pick yourself back up, but just Trying new things and seeing that whether you succeed or fail, you know, you still survive. <laughs> it's okay. You know, if you're terrified of public speaking and, and you go to a Toastmasters and you do a terrible job, you, you're still alive. You're still, you know, you live to fight another day. It's, it's not the worst thing in the world to fail. And so the more things, the more new things you try, especially things that you're scared of doing, the more you see that however it comes out, you'll be Okay. And that's where the confidence comes from. I'll be okay. No matter what happens, I'll be okay. Courtney, are you telling me that if I do, if I totally bomb a public speaking event, I'm not going to die? Is that you, what you're saying? You well, Likely. You know, I'll say <laughs> more than likely is you'll survive. 
I'm laughing because I, I tell my students <laughs> that as well. And, but here's the thing. The brain tries to convince us because of some, some primitive wiring in our brains that mm-hmm. this, is, this is life or death. And, right. and when we look at it objectively, we can laugh about this. But, but how many times do people, I mean, that's a good example public speaking people just mm-hmm. you know, they totally melt down and if we just step back from it and say wait a minute what's the worst that can happen so they laugh at you mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it, it's okay so uh, yeah I'm glad you brought that up all right I, I feel like we touched on this a little bit earlier but I want to circle back to this because this is something I've struggled with myself and this you know the idea of not only gratitude these are some things that you've wrote about as well gratitude and self-compassion Mm-hmm. And, you know, as, as I, as I said earlier, and I think you agree, we gotta, we gotta have some grace for ourselves and, and say, you know what, we're going to fall down. And so I don't know whether it's self-compassion and self-love, um, self-acceptance. I think those are, I don't know, maybe you can help me there. Are those all interchangeable? I don't know, but, but how important is that for us to, you know, to have that resilience that we've been talking about? Yeah. And they're often used interchangeably, you know, they, they have their, their differences, of course, when you get down to to terms, but generally it it all kind of leads to the same thing. It's, it's accepting and loving yourself as you are. It's offering yourself grace, as you said. And again, it's one of those things that's closely related with resilience and one can kind of build the other, right? When we like fail and, and pick ourselves back up, we, we can develop a little sense of, oh, like, you know, we got this. Hey, like, go us, right? And then the more that we kind of accept and, and love and feel compassion for ourselves, the nicer we are to ourselves when we fail, which makes it easier to get back up. So they they go hand in hand. And the good news is that working on one of these things is likely to help you with all of the others as well. Do you, do you have any tips? I've, I've gone through my own kind of learning in this area and, and rec, number one, I think it, it, you got to recognize it for a lot of people. I didn't realize how hard I was on myself. till I started really paying attention to my inner dialogue. So mm-hmm. I think people need to start there, but what do you have any tips on how can we get better at, at really loving ourselves more, accepting ourselves more, having compassion for ourselves? Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things that you can do and a lot of them are just really foundational. There are things that are just going to improve your life either way, like practicing self-care, you know, taking good care of yourself, treating yourself like a, like a dear friend or family member. I like to, to have people do that, that exercise, you know, where they write down some of the things they're thinking about themselves. And then they pretend that, you know, they're saying those things to a, a friend or a loved one or a partner, someone they really care about. And then you'll, you know, they quickly go, Oh my God, <laughs> I would never say that to this person that I love. And then it's, you know, it's a good way to to say, well, you know, why why are you saying that to yourself? You know, your, your loved ones wouldn't let someone else say that to you and you wouldn't say that to one of your loved ones. So like start considering yourself, one of your loved ones, you know, you should, you should love yourself. Why not? makes things a whole lot easier, but I know it's hard. It's, it's hard to change a lifetime of, you know, negative thinking of being self-critical. So one of the best ways to start is to just build your awareness. Start paying attention to the things that you say to yourself, write them down, note them, label them. You know, sometimes just going, oh, I'm being very self-critical right now. Just putting a, a label to it can be enough to stop it. Allowing yourself to feel whatever emotions you feel without judgment, without shame, without, you know, 
putting a value judgment on them, right? That's a good thought or that's a bad thought. Uh, just allowing yourself to feel what you feel and then sort of to take it to the next level, sharing it openly with someone that you care about or with a therapist is really, really helpful. It's, it's all of these things are just ways to, to really get to know yourself, accept yourself as you are. And, and the love generally follows after that. And I want to emphasize something you said that this, this doesn't happen overnight. You know, no. I've gone through my own, again, my own struggles in this area. And it's, I always say it's a work in progress. And when I get tired or I can slip into bad habits, but you're right. It's a lifetime of, of thinking this way. And all of a sudden we say, okay, now I want to change. I want to, I want to think differently. And that's great. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's just the start of the journey. So I want to make sure that people understand that this isn't going to happen in a week. No, it's not. But the good news is that you can start right away. Yep. Good advice. Mm-hmm. When's the best time to start? Right now. <laughs> well, yesterday, but <laughs> since yeah, we can't go, go back, go. <laughs> let's start today. <laughs> ah, this has been fun. I feel like I could talk to you for a long time about these topics because these are these are things that I, I kind of geek out on. But let's go to our last question. And this one's a little bit of a tough one, Courtney. Mm-hmm. What is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? I'm going to ask you to be a little bit vulnerable here with our audience. Yeah, I will. You know, I've had a lot of failures, so it's hard to say what was the what was the biggest failure. I'd say the biggest sort of objective failure that I've faced was the the PhD program. I started in a PhD program right out of undergrad. I was I was gung-ho, I was enthusiastic, you know, I was going to reach the highest heights and get that, get that PhD, whether I needed it or not. (laughs) And I failed. I ended up leaving two years in with a master's degree, which of course is not a, not a bad thing, but for an overachiever like me for, you know, that, that a plus kid that always had to get all the gold stars that felt like, felt like a pretty huge fail. And it was something that I struggled with for, for several years after, especially watching, you know, some of my, my peers and, and colleagues continuing on getting their PhDs. And it taught me a really important lesson that some, some things aren't worth doing. You know, I, there's nothing wrong with getting a PhD, of course, and, and getting higher education in general, but you know, I, I, I wasn't planning on teaching. I wasn't planning on doing anything where I specifically needed a PhD. I just wanted to get it so I could say I had a PhD, you know, so I could feel the most valid, so I could feel the most educated. And then I thought then, you know, maybe I would be happy with myself and and with my accomplishments. So it was, it was a blow, but you know, I, I didn't need to do it. And I finally kind of realized that and embraced that, I did what I needed to do. I learned a lot. I got out with a degree that I'm putting to great use. And and sometimes things aren't worth doing just because they're hard to do. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then... Join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.